You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Minus 11, 250. Minus 11, 9% fuel. 25, 2, 5,000 feet, 3, 9, 3, 8, 3, 9, 4,000 feet, 4, 0, 4, 1, 4, 5, 4, 7, 5-2, 3,000 feet. Okay, Houston, the Falcon is on the plane at Hadley. Roger, Roger, Falcon. Oh boy, what a view. David Scott, the astronaut, said as he stuck his spacesuit helmeted head out of the hatch of his lunar landing module. Man, no denying that, we had contact. And peered out into the moon. Falcon had landed in the Apennine Plain. And Scott had studied maps and telescopic photos, so as he looked around, he knew exactly what he was looking at. And he could roll off the names of craters, rocky hills, and other features. I was a jubilant Dave Scott reporting Apollo 15 on the plane at Hadley. It's all beautiful, absolutely breathtaking, he says into his communication device, so Houston can hear. Endlessly fulfilling. And it needs to be. Because it's 1971, and by now six people have been to the moon. Apollo 15 was going to be the longer, more purposeful voyage with a special treat. The moon car. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The site of the Apennine mountain range, 16 feet up and rising from the dusty cratered ground above it, pitch blackness, punctured by tiny stars. And the Earth, at this time, just a crescent. Couldn't distract Scott and Irwin, his co-astronaut, from their mission. They needed to detach the lunar rover from the side of the landing module. They folded out. Four wheels, electric power, the whole thing like a big circuit board with seats on it. With their car, they could travel farther to the Hadley Cannon, a rupture made from ancient lava, where they'd perform experiments and find rocks that they couldn't find on the surface. Hopefully, they could snag a rock from the moon core utilizing the canyon cut by some ancient meteor. Apollo 15 was not designed to be cheap. It was the later missions of Apollo that were designed to do more scientific experiment. Pounds and pounds of scientific equipment. Well, in my left hand, I have a a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. And I guess one of the reasons uh, we got here today was because of a gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon. The lunar car alone cost $12 million. Their mission would cost several billion. A lot of the cost was in the rockets that sent them up there alone, but also the spacesuits, the two ships, the landing module and spacecraft, the computer systems, the scientific instrument kits, the storage space, new communication, oxygen, food, electronics. And on Earth, 
These costs mostly ignored when Apollo 11 put boots on the moon. No one in that great moment would speak much to the cost. It did come up. Apollo 13, by necessity, forced the attention of the nation on its mission because the safety of the astronauts was in question. Now, in 1971, new concerns emerged. This president has done nothing about meat prices. So said Congresswoman Lenore Sullivan of Missouri about President Nixon. He'd already taken heat for lumber prices going up, which means home prices and fixing up your home going up. And now rent increases forced Congress to take action, putting stays on rent increases, and now meets a problem. Inflation wasn't a word heard much in the past in popular discussion. But by 1971, people are hearing it. Not just in economic classes, but in living rooms. Inflation rate was 4.1 when Nixon was elected. It had risen to 6% now. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here, and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. How about that? Mr. Galileo was correct in his findings. The promise to send men to the moon and return them safely to the earth was made by a different president, John F. Kennedy, when inflation was an unnoticeable 1.1%. Now that it was more than five times that, Nixon had mainly inherited the rest of NASA's Apollo program. Even before the Apollo 11 astronauts come home, Nixon cut NASA's budget. He'd do it again with this year's budget, half a billion. Congress would cut even more. A billion. Critical problems are here on this planet, Nixon made a point of saying. We shouldn't allow our space program to stagnate, but with the entire future and the entire universe ahead of us, we should not try to do everything at once. In a way, Nixon was saying, outer space isn't going anywhere. But he was also playing his own domestic program against his own domestic program. Space was known to be expensive. We had gone to the moon. We had fulfilled that promise. Soviets didn't get there, at least not yet. They did send unmanned craft. Something else wasn't going away for Nixon. The election next year for his re-election in 1972, by no means was his re-election certain in 1971, as these astronauts are on the moon. Indeed, the Apollo 13 near disaster shook him, not just as a person, uh, though in some measure I'm sure it did, but as a politician, a space disaster in his political nervous system was trouble. Space is NASA. NASA is the federal government. The federal government is run by Nixon. If something goes wrong, it goes to the White House. He wanted to cancel the Apollo 15 mission. He didn't. But he did cancel Apollo missions 18, 19, and 20. In case you're wondering why the last mission to the moon was 17, it seems like an odd number. Now it was supposed to be. Nice, even 20. There are immediate effects even to that, even to those future cancellations. Less workers. Mission control increased the scientific workload. At this mission in 15, we have to do more with the missions we're going to, and chose the best locations for geologic payoff. On the Earth, one could see houses for sale and boarded up stores in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Sam, we copied a both solar wind and... Uh Penetrometer drum in the ETB. Not quite, yes. I haven't put the solar wind in yet, but I will shortly. 
I want to watch this. But on the moon, he and Scott take their seats in the moon car, the lunar rover. Darn, same as the Earth. The car won't start. But eventually it does. It better for $12 million. When the average car is $4,000 or less. But only the back wheels worked, which meant that steering only with the back wheels, it was like riding a boat. Bucking Bronco, Irwin says. Ben, this is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Your heading is beautiful. Continue on. Still, they got to experience the first car on the moon and definitely go farther than one could go walking, which would allow them to maximize the three days, the largest moon mission that they had, and travel 18 miles on the moon service. It's a nice ride. It filmed video as well while they rode along, although the film was grainy. One problem not anticipated was the rover's fender. The moon is dusty, and as it makes tire tracks, it's kicking up dust into the passenger seat. And uh, Irwin is taking it. This could mean that his vision and possibly foul up his space suit. No problem, though. They used their laminated instruction booklet and some duct tape as a nice flap in front of the tire, blocking that dust. This down, they could go and claim the Genesis Rock, a four billion old something else. The rover has a dual function. It's also a TV antenna. And it was time for the show, or you might say, the sales pitch. I don't believe there's a single thing that our country does, our government does, our people uh, that uh, has greater potential for peace than the space effort. Lyndon Johnson was heavily involved in space. As VP, he was put in charge of it. This is what John F. Kennedy as president gave his vice president to do. And no surprise, mission control with his support was in his home state of Texas. Especially after the Soviets do the first spacewalk. Kennedy's grabbing Johnson. What can we do? Can we get to the moon? Can we put a man on the moon? The push for Kennedy's moon pledge really has little to do with space exploration in and of itself. Kennedy wouldn't have it on the agenda if it wasn't for the Soviets. As I walked out uh, from the blast off, I saw that special section of ambassadors there from all the nations of the world, all taking such great pride in America's efforts. So it might be tempting to see Lyndon Johnson as a supporter of space program, which he was, and as key defender, budget-wise. But as president, even he chafed a bit at the competition for funds. His Medicare, his Federal Housing Authority, increased education funding, all of this required dollars. His great society was taking the same dollars the NASA had. Furthermore, he envied the automatic respect that NASA got. If something failed on the way to the moon, well, that was the way of science. Not so with policy. I wish the public had seen the task of ending poverty the same way they saw the task of getting to the moon, he said. By 1967, Lyndon Johnson has no choice and had to reduce NASA funding. His 1967 budget reduction for NASA is something that will continue into the 1980s, each year. That's the direction we go. That's why Norman Mailer thought that Americans no longer found any poetry in going to the moon after the first one. 
Well, there'd be two more missions to the moon, and when the last astronauts of Apollo 17 completed their mission, Nixon almost seemed to relish saying that these would be the last humans on the moon in this century. Still concerned about the Soviets getting there, but they didn't think that was going to happen. Didn't want to encourage them anymore. They didn't really want to spend much more on it. They were happy doing unmanned missions to the moon and particularly interested in Venus. Even there, even in Cold War competition, presidents were finding ways. Well, if we don't try so hard to do another moon mission, maybe they won't. Lyndon Johnson does a, uh, a treaty with the Soviets, try to give him the ability to reduce space spending by by treating with the Soviets, they won't develop weapons in space. So Nixon here puts a lock on it and says, these will be the last humans on the moon of the century. And he was right. In 1960, a large $3.6 billion budget for NASA is set up. It's doubled. $6.7 billion in 1961, $11 billion in 1962, $22 billion in 1963, $36 billion in 1964, $43 billion in 1965. Staggering numbers for budgets at this time. And that first cut that you see is an 11% cut in 1967. Followed by a 17% cut in 1968. What's happening at the same time is a 4.2% inflation rate. The rate goes up to 5. 4.6% in 1969. The NASA budget is $31 billion. That's a decrease of 15%. Let's take it through the 70s. The NASA budget total in real constant 2021 dollars drops from $26 billion in 1970 to $16.3 billion in 1980. The inflation rate varies, but it's usually what we would consider fairly high. 1971, 4.2, 1973, 6.1, What's happening to the NASA budget that time? 1970, 17% drop. 1971, 14% drop. 1972, 2% drop. 1973, 9% drop. 1974, 12% drop. 1975, 8% drop. 1976, a 6% increase. 1977, a 2% increase. 1978, a 3% drop. 1979, a 5% drop. 1980, flat.
the lowest drops during that period, the year 1972. It's just a 2% drop in the NASA budget. What does it coincide with? 3.2% inflation, a low inflation year for the decade of the 1970s. When you start to see inflation break is really 1982. So 1981. 10% 10% inflation, 1982, 6% inflation, 1983, 3% inflation, 1984, 4.3%, 1985, 3.5. And what's happening to that NASA budget? Flat, a 1% increase, a 5% increase. Time you get to 1983, you got just 3% inflation and an 8% increase, 4% inflation in 1984. And just a little trimming, negative one. I mean, this is the Reagan administration. They're trimming almost everything. But you don't see the kind of massive cuts that you see in that decade of the 1970s. And from this data and from the statements of politicians and everything else going on, you can conclude. I mean, I don't want to say inflation killed space. It didn't kill the space program, but it changed it. What did we lose in that process? That's always the question. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Isaac Asimov said that uh, in going to the moon and then doing little else in space, 
the United States scored a touchdown and then gave up the ball. Football metaphors, right? If you don't watch football. In other words, we scored. And then what did we do with it? Right? I'm sure. I'm certain that a lot of people, I wasn't old enough. I'm certain that a lot of people watching that TV screen thought this was just the beginning. I don't know if everybody thought there'd be hotels on the moon, but we do be doing a little bit more than like never sending any person to the moon again. The other point is, once we scored, it may have been such an achievement that it's hard to find that second inspiration. The next best was Earth orbits, space stations, and ships to get back and forth to those space stations. Something that was more practical. You know, you'll see with later presidents, Mars becomes the objective. We put rovers on Mars. But even in Nixon's time, there's a suggestion that the next mission be Mars. But he cancels that. It's too fantastic. And there's budget concerns. President George W. Bush stirred up some interest when he said America would go to Mars. Um, Carl Rove said, you know, this isn't going to be a school uniforms president. We're going to dream big things. Yeah, that's the image that he wants. So by invoking some big moonshot, that image of doing something as a president. But it was pretty quickly seen by what he was budgeting. We weren't going to get to Mars anytime soon with what George W. Bush was budgeting. And while, again, we sent very successful rovers, um, that's where we are. Up until recently, there's been no interest in sending another American up into the moon. Now, you know, one of the reasons is cost. Mercury, Gemini, Apollo cost $110 billion when adjusted for inflation. Since we're going to talk about costs, I always bring this up. Um, I always bring this up. You have to watch just straight, simple CPI comparisons of like, what's the price of food now and what was the price of food then? You know, so that $110 billion is actually larger than $110 billion today. Why? I'll give you a quick example. $110 billion is available. Like in, you don't need the government to generate that. It's a lot of money, don't get me wrong. But companies like Dell, GM, Amazon, Walmart, Apple, they exceed that. There's probably about 30 companies, private companies alone, that exceed that dollar value. But for what it was in 1970, $25 billion? There were none. Only General Motors, that mega company at that time in 1970, came close at $24 billion. Exxon at 14 Another comes in at 11 And then the only source of that money is the federal government. But $25 billion in that year would have been one-fourth of the federal budget in 1970. So it's huge. That's why CPI alone doesn't tell you much. Because we could very much spend $110 billion. It doesn't shock you, does it? Because you're hearing about like what we spend on COVID stimulus and things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think when you're looking for an equivalent, I'd say at least a trillion. Because there were just no sources of money. So at least a trillion. I know we get, we get bogged down in this. That's a three-dimensional calculation really depends on what you want to measure. You can get somewhere in between by measuring, let's say, the what a, uh, how much a worker earns and how much their, their wages would add up to. You get somewhere in between there where it's like a couple hundred million. From 1960 to 1970, inflation was just 2.5% average. 
people weren't even talking about the increase in prices. Kennedy's administration gets a good economy. Lyndon Johnson, until the tail end, gets a very good economy. There's questions about how much he's spending, but it's not in a context of prices going up. The 70s are a monster decade for the amount of spending. Now, what does that mean? It, you know, as consumers, we're experiencing it this right now. Costs are going up on various things. I, you know, it 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 may not be the 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 way that it's being told in the press, but it it's gone up to a way that we finally understand what inflation is. You have to add a dimension here. When we're talking about government spending, okay, and you have a decade of low inflation, that means that government is spending that $110 billion and getting a good value for the money. When you have to consider that more of the federal dollars the taxpayers are spending, that congressmen have to vote for, that voters in their districts are yelling at them about, when more of it has to be spent to get the same thing or less than you got in the 60s. And it generally tends to drive government spending down in politics. It, it, at least at this time, it did. Because if you're not going to get a good value for your federal money, don't spend it, is what a lot of people will say. Through all these times, NASA counteracted with the weapons that it had relationship with Congress, the captivating the imaginations of the American people, good old public relations. Even on that moon mission, Apollo 15, Scott and Irwin set up their GCTA, a television system, which happened to be on that moon car so that they could broadcast live, so that they could film themselves. It had to feel, uh, when they make their statements, it has the feel of a sales pitch in some of the comments. Armstrong had already said, one small step for men. Now it was, isn't this beautiful? It's like Sun Valley up here. How could you look at this and say it isn't worth it? Direct statement telegraphed to Houston, but really to the entire American people, and especially those who were members of Congress. That television camera was left on the moon as the astronauts took off. And then you see the first television images in Apollo 15 of the lunar module going back up to the spacecraft. First moon flight rocket launch. Twelve days after they had taken off in Florida, the three astronauts, one of them was up in the spacecraft orbiting the moon, splashed down about 300 miles from Honolulu. They would get the treatment. They'd be in a motorcade down New York's Fifth Avenue, key to the city from John Lindsay, the mayor. They'd also get medals from the United Nations. General Secretary Uthant got to take a little ride on the moon rover, which was on tour. Fireworks in their hometowns, then back to Washington, where Scott, Borden, and Irwin were honored by Congress. And of course, President Nixon, too, who told them they had made a magnificent achievement. They, in turn, pitched their own agency. The moon has been undisturbed since life came out of the sea on Earth, astronaut Warden said. We didn't want to leave our valley on the moon, Irwin said. We did so with reluctance. It's beautiful up there. Trips to Chicago, Brussels, Munich followed, and they made a trip to the Orange Bowl in 1972. Featured a float of that lunar rover car. In some ways, the moon car was more the star than these astronauts in that mission. They visit Poland and Yugoslavia, acts of Cold War diplomacy. Back to the White House for a debrief 
to Nixon on how the trip abroad had gone. We're awfully proud of you, Nixon said, though he proceeded to talk about a new project he planned. A space station, and to get back and forth, a space shuttle for routine flights to and from that space station. This shuttle, Nixon said, will look like a DC-10. The shuttle will be designed to go to space 100 times. We know now how this ends. Spoiler alert, no space shuttle is ever going to do that. This is the, when Nixon has it as a budget item, as a concept, this is the plan. It's a little surprised that by 1976, when you see the issues between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, space race isn't really there. I mean, Ford is generally going to be a supporter of the space program. That's not the issue. I did a quick search on the first debate between Ford and Carter, where you're going to start to bring up those issues. You're going to hammer each other on or mention programs that you want to support if you're elected president. First debate of the 1976 election. There is not a mention of space. There is not a mention of NASA. There is not a mention of moon, planets, rockets. Not in the second debate nor in the third debate between Ford and Carter. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, distinguished guests, my very dear friends. In his first inaugural address, President Franklin D. Roosevelt said, and I quote, the people of the United States have not failed. They want direct... It's not something the President Ford wants to brag about because it's spending money when he's being attacked on that. And and he's out there trying to whip inflation. Today, my conclusions are very simply stated. There is only one point on which all advisors have agreed. We must whip inflation right now. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. As far as Carter goes, man from planes wants the spending to be done on Earth. Attacks the space station program, which would have been the largest NASA program at that time, as a magnificent failure. And his running mate, Walter Mondale, was the number one senator for voting against the space station while he was in the Senate. That's where you are. It's a senseless extravagance, is what Walter Mondale calls it. It's a very common, actually, attack, a liberal attack on space. In the 90s, uh, senators would be treated to Dale Bumpers of Arkansas, a good friend of Bill Clinton, a Democrat, who each year would lead the quest to cancel the spending on the space station. He'd have a thousand different reasons. He'd had scientists that are against it. He'd say, you're not making any meaningful discoveries, all of this and that. And very often it was Republicans like Christopher Bond of Missouri or Kate uh, or Hutchinson of Texas who would 
respond that, oh, you have to support the space program. I mean, a kind of very strange bipartisan politics of these Republican senators coming to the aid of something that Clinton supports and Clinton's friend being against it. But every year he would say, bring the funding back on Earth. Very common. Um, From that first time in the early 60s, when a unknown local candidate wrote to a newspaper of that phrase, if we can put a man on the moon, then we can X. That's constantly been the argument sort of against space programming. Now, I'm sure Walter Mondale, Deal Bumpers, all of these people would have told you that it's not all space funding they're against. It's just this part of it or this thing or this is an extravagance, but generally they're, they're there against it. I talked about in another cast how mid-1960s uh, spending on space made a good metric to judge Medicare size and power. Like If we can put a man on the moon, that constant phrase actually helped Medicare pass because that staggering billion-dollar ticket of Medicare you know, was still tough to get through Congress, even with a good majority after the 64 election, but it was made easier by the fact that we we're spending an awful lot to beat the Soviets in space. But you don't have that anymore after we're on the moon. It was not just being pro-space or anti-space. It was about what to do with space. Nixon may have had as much impact on the space program as John F. Kennedy did, but it was a particular impact. It wasn't all good either, you could say. First, Nixon tries and is unable to turn NASA from this extraordinary space agency into just a technology development agency. In other words, you hear about, hey, the semiconductors were developed from the space program. The first hard pump is based on the space shuttle fuel pump, miniaturization of computers, you know, leading to telephonic developments, satellites, all of this stuff. Well, if there's technology coming from the space program, Nixon's thinking, let's just make a technology agency and do it directly. He's unable to do that. There's too much support in Congress for space for that. Then he proposes we stay closer to Earth and comes up with a concept that still sounds good, like something dramatic, but is closer to Earth. Carter makes it clear when he's president that it's not necessary to commit to the the nation to a space engineering initiative comparable to Apollo. Space is a place to work. Half of the space spending in 1978 was by the Department of Defense. That work meant satellites, guidance systems. NASA fights back during this period. NASA would fight back. Jobs aren't in space, NASA's fond of saying. Thousands of scientists, engineers, and technicians, and in many states, Texas, Florida, Alabama, very important states for the U.S. Senate, have NASA buildings. But there's a real problem as you get to the late 70s with the space shuttle even. It's delayed. There's a problem with some of the thermoprotective tiles. Make it now anyway. We'll fix it later. Skylab Space Station. We talked about that. That that Skylab was made to orbit the Earth. But there was no plan developed for a navigation system how to get it back because of budget cuts. Discipline. 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 Discipline, and say that word five more times. Time magazine noted that Jimmy Carter had said the word nine times in his speech on inflation. Called for 2% in federal spending to be cut. 
and a balanced budget in a year's time. Now, 2% doesn't seem like a lot, but in Washington, D.C., to even have a cut is then and now, with all those Washington lobby groups and with a Democratic Congress for president with a primary, possible primary challenger, Ted Kennedy waiting in the wings. He introduced controls on credit and debt, not as much as some wanted. William Roth of Delaware wanted to hold spending to 21% of GNP to cut $26 billion. Carter wanted a cut of 13 The biggest question, Time Magazine said, is whether Carter's plans, all of them, will have enough shock value to break the inflation psychology that has gripped the nation. The most familiar manifestation of that has been the compunction of consumers to dip into savings are borrowed to buy before prices go higher now. These are interesting things that you heard a lot of in those times, and maybe we'll start hearing more about, like people saying, well, buy it now, buy it now. That turns the expectation of more inflation into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Executives talk of inflation reaching 20%, creating an environment in which reasonable business planning is impossible. Said the American Stock Exchange chair, There's no confidence that any price has any meaning. Plus, early signs of recession, car dealerships, sales of cars, housing prices reduced by the high interest rates, construction already in recession. Time Magazine and Luck has a tendency to run a little conservative, a little businessman-y. Time Magazine does. You know, so there's businessmen clutching pearls and all this inflation where, to some extent, average consumers were mixed, didn't like the gas prices, liked that some of their salaries, particularly in a union job, went up. Time Magazine's cover in 1980 shows Carter surrounded by large percentage signs and prices from cash registers and gas pumps as he says, discipline, discipline, discipline. But something had changed from 1970 to now. Inflation was squarely placed in the mind of America and not just in Washington or Harvard University. More spending, you know, if the president's saying discipline, more government spending is not discipline. You're equating federal spending with more inflation. This concept of crowding out. Haven't really heard as much of it as um, there's a little bit in some of the attacks on Biden say, but, you know, you don't hear as much of it. I think you will. That every time the government spends, you're crowding out dollars, crowding out oil, crowding out um, if interest rates go up. It's like you're you're driving interest rates up because you're competing for money that's available, driving the cost of money up in a high money market. Don't think about those things when interest rates are 3.5% on a 30-year loan. And what's changed from Nixon to Carter is that Carter's actually suggesting now a cut in federal spending to get the inflation rate down, as if those things are automatic hoping that bankers will see it so, putting through credit controls so that it's more expensive for customers to borrow. There's two ways. We talked about that in the savings and loan cast with inflation. There's two ways. You can limit credit. You can just raise interest rates. The other thing you can do is increase regulation on banks, make it harder for them to loan or make it easier. With the savings and loan mess, this is going to be an answer to some of the things going on and starting with the Carter presidency they made it a little easier, but in other legislation that he did made things a little harder. Credit controls. Carter, in this way, is right there with Nixon 
Nixon insists that NASA and the space program cannot be the separate epic moment in American life where no one's watching the pennies. Space expenditures must take their place within a higher system of national priorities. And Jimmy Carter says space is a place to work. Same messaging. That's why after a frustrating meeting with NASA administrators, shuttle program managers, Robert Frosch, a physician who Carter appointed to the space program to be liaison, was tasked to tell the president that the space shuttle won't take off unless they get more money. He'd never been a great friend to the space program, Frosch said. So he wasn't looking forward to the meeting. And he goes to Washington, sits down with Carter. We're going to need a supplemental. The current NASA budget isn't going to do it. There's too many tricks in there. You're moving money around. We need a supplemental just for the space program. He's surprised by the response. How much do you need? And Carter, right there, signs off on a supplemental extra spending to save the space shuttle in fiscal year 79 and fiscal year 80. Carter wasn't always thinking about politics probably more than any president. He was thinking a little. Certainly a shuttle launch right before the election, not a bad thing. That's not why he signs off. Apparently, Carter had just returned from Vienna, where he negotiated directly with Brezhnev on the SALT Treaty. And one of the things during the negotiations back and forth is he had to end up telling Brezhnev, we have a shuttle. And we're going to be able to see if you comply. So they had to get it built. So for those of us like myself that grew up in the 80s, you see the space shuttle as kind of the amazing space um, accomplishment. It ends up, doesn't happen during Carter's administration. It ends up happening really the beginning of Reagan's years, the first shuttle launch. And we see that kind of as a big accomplishment. But the reality is the space shuttle reflects a budget cut. And it never even accomplished the component that it was supposed to be in a larger program of constant commuting between Earth and space. At least professional or scientific commuting between space stations and the Earth. Instead, each voyage was heroic, expensive, and sadly, two of them were deadly. Uh, That's been roundly criticized. You're seeing now, after all of this time, some criticism that we ever had a shuttle at all. I mean, it's something we're proud of as Americans. We're proud of space uh, uh, exploration. There's some who question whether that was the right approach at all. You can talk about privatized space. That starts really in full in the Reagan administration where they develop a specific agency, which is seen as a little bit loony at the time, to have private space efforts. It starts in his administration and continues for it. George W. Bush talks a lot about it during his presidency. And now you have the Artemis mission, which would be a mission that would eventually get us to the moon, perhaps in 2024 during the Biden administration. Um, So we're going back to the moon. Again, what's pushing us To some degree, private investment has given us some more options and reduced some cost in some ways, Um, made it so that NASA is not the only one training astronauts anymore. But it's also competition from other countries because you have uh, China 
also aiming at getting to the moon. The other factor driving the moon project, the idea of seeing the moon, uh, seeing the moon as a way to get to Mars, first stop on going to Mars. And we can be rightly proud of all of the, you know, I'm one who believes that there's so much focus on manned exploration of space, but look at all the scientific developments you get from sending unmanned objects into space. I mean, a mass spectrometer on a uh, rover, for instance, you know, you don't need to train a geologist and, and to see what they're looking at. That machine knows what type of rock it is because of the, the, the lasers. So, um, but the main point being that as we're entering another inflationary time, uh, possibly, still don't think it's near the experience in totem that we had in the 70s. But as you enter, and, and by the way, there have been periods of short inflation in American history. So this idea that you're either in the 70s or not um, is not aligned with all of the history. You've had like quick bouts of inflation during the Truman administration, during the Eisenhower administration that you've come quickly out of. So whatever we're in, my point would be that you see in the one of the things America is proudest of going to space, that even that is not immune from what's happening in the politics of Earth and particularly the cost of things. And it's not just kind of like Tony Republican bean counters or people who want to cut, you know, social security. It's just as much over time been Democrats, liberals, who in some cases want to limit space expenditures because of priorities on this planet. And, you know, I don't tell you who's right <laughs> in my history you can beat up your politics unless it's like a hammer to the head so, so clear. What I do tell you is that these debates occurred over time and will happen again if they occurred in the past. You will see debates like this again. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you'd like the program, please tell someone about it.